But I think people forget that all of these companies started off with humans going out into the street and making that business work. Welcome to Two Sided, the Marketplace Podcast, brought to you by ShareTribe. Hi, I'm Short, CMO at ShareTribe, and I am your host. In today's episode, I speak to Sophie Edelman about talent marketplaces. Sophie has a lot of experiences with that. She was the first international hire at Hired.com, a tech recruitment marketplace. There, she led the expansion of Hired from the US into the UK. And after that, Sophie founded White Hat, which matches ambitious people with an apprenticeship at employers. We discuss how liquidity works in marketplaces like this, how all marketplaces basically start off as a managed marketplace, how important it can be to educate one side of your marketplace, and the general importance of data. A terrific talk altogether, and again, filled with some real gems. Uh, a quick note on the audio quality. So Sophie sounds fantastic, but it turned out after the recording that there had been a small buzz on my side. Our amazing producer, Nemanja, was able to reduce it significantly, but at times you might hear a strange light buzz when I'm talking. So no worries, there's nothing wrong with your audio setup, and I apologize for any auditory inconveniences, but this just happens sometimes. Now, enough said, let's listen to Sophie discuss talent marketplaces. Enjoy! Hi, Sophie. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hey, before we uh, dive straight into all the marketplaces, maybe you can tell the people at home a little bit about your background, sort of kind of up until hired, because that's where I want to straight dive into a couple more questions. Sure. So I grew up in the UK, British born and bred, and I, I started my career actually in conference production. I was a conference producer in my first job, and which is a very entrepreneurial role. I did that for about a year. And then I went and worked in investment banking at Goldman for about 18 months. I have to be honest, I didn't really love that experience. It was in 2007, 2008. So the financial crisis it was a terrifying time to be starting your career in lots of different ways. And I don't think it was the kind of opportunity that was the right fit for me and my skill set. But it was a great learning experience. And then from there, I went and worked at Egon Zenda, which is an executive search firm, uh, doing sort of searches, management appraisals, really understanding how companies are built and how people think about talent and talent assessment, which has obviously been a thread throughout my career and something that I, I feel very passionately about. I then went off and did a, an MBA at Stanford. I can very happy to talk about my experience of an MBA. I think it's a very personal choice why people go and do that. But I I had an amazing time and I feel the lessons I learned from that are now coming into play 10 years later. And then before hired, I actually worked in finance. So I worked in investing for a family office slash investment trust. So quite an eclectic career in that regard. Yeah. And now actually with the addition of the MBA, I think somehow I missed that because I was kind of surprised because I was doing some background research on you. And then how did you get into hired? And I was checking and I was like, well, that's quite an entrepreneurial position for someone who comes seemingly out of mostly investment banking. That's not a, it's usually the other way around that an entrepreneur goes somehow on the capital side uh, rather than, so maybe you could tell us a little bit more, like how did you get across that opportunity? Well, I think the hired opportunity came from two fronts. One was, as you said, I was out in California for two years. I have a lot of friends who 
finished their MBA and went and worked at some of the most highly successful startups and scale-ups that we've known over the last decade. So the Ubers, the Lyfts of the world. And I saw them working in these very fast-paced environments and just thought, that sounds amazing. That sounds super cool. They're building companies. And that's what I've always wanted to do. I've wanted to build a company. I've always had that desire to be leading and developing people and building businesses. And when I was at the investment trust that I was part of, I was actually helping build businesses within the business. So I launched a head fund seeding business. I was involved in starting new businesses for the fund. And so I got to scratch that itch a little bit, but not fully. And then the actual opportunity came about because before I went to Stanford, I actually did a summer internship for an organization called Atomico, which is a VC fund right back at the beginning. Before Atomico was a really well-known fund, there was about five of us in a room and you know, got to, to see how startups worked and both internally in a VC fund, but also in their portfolio companies. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, I knew I wanted to build businesses, work in a high growth environment. I reached out to the Atomico team and they told me about the hired opportunity and it just felt like it fitted perfectly with both my aspirations and my experience having worked in the talent space. And so I wrote a cover letter. I didn't know anyone at the company. I wrote a cover letter saying, these are the three reasons why I understand the problem you're trying to solve. And these are the three reasons why I think I'm the person to do it. And I got a call within a couple of hours from the CEO and the rest is history. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. So so you got that chance and you were the first international hire. Well, okay, now we know a little bit, possibly some of the market or some of the businesses that you interacted with during the earlier ones had some kind of marketplace component. But I was watching one of your talks at the B2B Rocks in Paris from 2016. Okay, the topic of that talk was slightly about different things, but you said something sort of besides that I would be very interested in saying like, oh, well, we could have done a lot better on some things. And some of those things you mentioned were like, particularly the things that I'm interested in, into marketplace businesses. Mm -hmm. So how did that start? Like, did you go UK only? Did it go Europe-wide straight? No, so UK only. And I think that's one of the important things with a marketplace business, that you need to be really focused. Building a marketplace is, is difficult. I think a lot of people think that once you build a marketplace, it just sort of works, drives itself. And that's not the case at all. You have to drive that marketplace and be looking at the supply demand dynamics very closely all the time. So when I first started at Hired, I actually started as a client executive. So I was running the UK market, but really I was just boots on the ground. I was, you know, I was just hustling. I would be in Ubers all over London. I called it my mobile office. I'd get in an Uber, tether my laptop to my phone, be doing my emails and calls in the back of an Uber, going from meeting to meeting and just hustling to get companies to start using this platform that nobody had ever heard of. So what was exciting to me was when you look at my background, you can see I've got all these credentials, got these brands. So I'd always worked for organizations where you said, I work at Goldman, and it kind of opened the door. When I went to work for Hired, I had to build the brand. I had to build the brand of Hired, but I also had to build the Sophie brands, you know, Sophie Edelman brand. I had to have credibility myself because people were buying into me as much as they were into the offering. Because at that point, Hired was very early and the platform was not fully you know, wasn't fully built and people didn't really understand how it worked. So a lot of what we were doing was educating people, educating them on why this was a problem for them, how this could solve the problem, how this is a better solution. And that's what I was doing. So to start with, it was very UK focused, in fact, very London focused. And I was primarily focusing on the client side. And I had somebody in my team who was focusing more on the talent side. And we can talk a bit more about those dynamics. Yeah. 
I just now realized actually while you were saying this that we haven't even properly introduced what is hired. I know it, you know it. <laughs> so because my next questions are going to be indeed all about demand and supply side, but maybe you could in a couple of sentences say actually what kind of marketplace or what kind of platform is hired? Yeah, so Hired is a talent marketplace for technical talent, primarily software engineers, but also data scientists, UX designers, product managers. And it flips the normal recruitment model on its head. So normally when you're applying for a job, you apply for individual roles and the company will then decide whether or not to interview you. With Hired, you actually go through a kind of vetting curation process up front. You apply to the platform, then they curate the top 5 to 10% of talent And then companies go on and make interview requests to the candidate. So it puts the candidate back in the driving seat. It gives them the choice about which organizations they want to interview for. Now, that works because developers and designers and and data scientists are kind of the, they are in low supply, you know, the best people are in demand. And so companies would make interview requests to them. And it facilitates the engagement between those people who are looking for a new opportunity and those companies that are looking to hire top talent. Yeah. And so you mentioned that you went around all over London. So you were trying to get, in this case, the demand side in, because for the purpose of this discussion, we would say that supply side is all of the workforce or whether that is the candidates. And on the demand side, in this case, it's the company. So you went first to the demand side. Was the supply side already fixed? Because I, my experience with recruiting, especially developers, that that is actually where there's a constraint of some kind. But in your case, that was different. That is really important. So this is a really important point as people are thinking about building marketplaces. You need to really quickly understand whether you are supply constrained or demand constrained. And with Hired, what we found because of the US market is once you turned on marketing, actually finding good candidates was not difficult. Candidates really appreciated the value proposition, which was they don't have to apply to lots of different roles. They get to be in control. They got this talent advocate who was almost their careers coach who was supporting them through the process. They felt it was an opportunity for them to really showcase what they were good at, but also allowed them to define what they wanted to do rather than being peppered the whole time by recruiters telling them, hey, I've got a Python job when actually they want to go into Ruby development. So it was an opportunity for the candidates to get back into control. So once we started turning marketing on, supply just came and we didn't have a problem finding supply in general. And I'm, I'm talking in general because I... We'll later on talk a bit more about the nuances of supply demand and and sort of the nuances of different liquidities within marketplaces. But as a general rule, we were supply rich and demand constrained. So actually getting companies who were going to pay the fee to uh, recruit candidates was the constraint in our world. Yeah. And did you know this already when you took the job or was this something that you sort of learned while sitting in an Uber? Yes. I, I mean, I had the advantage that the business had about 45 people had been going for about 18 months, two years by the time I joined. And it was operating in two markets by that point. So New York and San Francisco. So they had seen that experience of turning supply on through marketing and then focusing on the demand side. However, you didn't know whether or not that was going to be exactly the same in the UK market. So the key thing for us was let's go and get companies to buy into the idea, get that demand in place, switch on supply and hope that the supply would come. And luckily it did. Yeah. And um, when you say like uh, marketing to get the supply on board, what kind of channels did you do to get the candidates on board? 
So there was a lot of sort of performance marketing, lots of marketing on Facebook and LinkedIn. Once we had candidates in place, there was a lot of referral-based marketing. So candidates would refer other candidates. And, and if those candidates got hired, they would get a cash incentive. We had large email databases. So we had ways to segment those candidate pools and actually email them once we knew that candidates had maybe taken a new job. And two years out, we could actually email them again and say, hey, are you thinking about your next opportunity? So there were lots of ways for us to continually nurture that candidate pool once we'd built it. But initially, it was all through marketing. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you would like to go in a little bit about the different kind of liquidities um, mm. within the market. I would love that as well, because this is the kind of deep dive that we're in for here. So how do you see this? So when you think about supply and demand constraints in marketplaces, once you've defined that your business is maybe demand constrained or supply constrained, you know where to focus most of your energy. But normally in a marketplace, you don't just have one product, right? So, you know, when eBay started, they had those like little furry animal things and that's all they sold. And so it was like these furry things and people who want to buy these furry things. I can't remember what they're called, like Beanie Babies, Beanie Babies, that's what they're called. And then they expanded, right? So they went from Beanie Babies to some other kind of collectible item. Yeah. So would you say that like it's often talked about you have like geologically constrained, you have the site constraint, and this is like the category constraint. Yeah. Right. So the way I would think about it is, so you have products and geos, right? So and each, when you're thinking about the products and the geos, each one of those squares within that matrix is actually its own little marketplace. So you can think about supply and demand between candidates and opportunities and in different geos. Actually, it's three-sided in many ways that regard. But, but each one will have a liquidity ratio between supply and demand. So you need to think about that when you're building it out. And Sometimes that will mean making decisions about not moving into new geos because that will create more complexity. Sometimes that will mean cutting the number of products that you offer. In our case, you know, we offered software engineers, data scientists and designers but, and, and product managers. We found that software engineers had high liquidity, whereas UX designers didn't. But actually, when you broke it down by different geos, you might find that central London had high liquidity but East London did not. And so you just need to be really sensitive to these things and think about the constraints that will affect your product being delivered to the market. And in our case, when you think about talent marketplaces, you have the issue that people only travel a certain distance to a job. So you need to be very conscious of what those constraints are within your marketplace. Yeah. And so what you're trying to say, for example, coming quickly back to the beginning of what you just said, when you talk about these squares, so you have geo on one side and product on the other side, and you have those liquidity ratio within those particular squares, is, for example, UX designers in Hempstead or something like that. Right. And you'd be looking at the supply-demand dynamics between that. So how many roles do you have within uh, four product designers within Hempstead, and how many candidates do you have, and what's the ratio between them? And then you'd rag rates so a red, amber, green whether or not you had high or low supply, and then make decisions about whether to invest more in an area or not, or remove that area, geo or product. And how did you measure that? Did you have a data scientist on board? or Because this sounds incredibly complex. It's not actually very complex because you just, as long as you've got the data. So the key thing when you're building out a marketplace is to be tracking, you know, having good audit trails of what people do, but also be 
early on building the infrastructure to be able to collect the data on the supply and demand and the different characteristics. So then you can use a business intelligence tool, a Tableau, a Looker to be able to you know, cut and dice the data. Now, actually, these ratios are quite simple to calculate, obviously, once you have that data in place. But I think this is one of the things that people need to get more and more comfortable with. And we were very comfortable with at Hired is everyone in the team had the ability to cut and dice the data using Looker. And we all got very good about manipulating the tool. And so I would look at, you know, the jobs that we had on the platform and I'd be able to look at the supply and I'd be able to then call up my colleague in San Francisco and say, hey, we're really light on Python developers. Hey, can you do a campaign about Python developers? We've got loads of jobs. And so it allowed you to pull those levers. And I think one lesson that I've learned from now working in two marketplace businesses is you need somebody who's always thinking about that supply demand dynamic and you're always constantly adjusting between the supply and the demand. It's a fine balancing act, which is what makes it fun because you're not just bashing one thing. You need lots of different tools the whole time. Yeah, like I always like to quote um, Simon Rothman who says that like liquidity isn't the most important metric. It's the only metric like for a marketplace. <laughs> yes. uh, we see that come back like again and again at ShareTribe, especially that's one of the sort of earliest advice we tried to give that Indeed, try to make that square as small as possible and fix it within those constraints and then go out. So I'm always happy to hear that that is actual advice that people have got. All right. So cool. Like that was your hired adventure. I think we went really nicely deep down the marketplace rabbit hole, which is fantastic. Nowadays, you're doing something else. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. So I left hired at the end of 2016 and joined my co-founder, Ewan, to build White Hat. White Hat is on a mission to build an outstanding alternative to university in order to democratize access to the best careers, build a diverse group of future leaders. So it's another talent marketplace, but it also has the element of actually training people to become future leaders through an apprenticeship model. So we do three things at White Hat. We have our marketplace, which is how do you connect the high potential talent to companies for these apprenticeship opportunities? And I can talk more about that, but just to explain the second and third part, the second part is we then actually deliver the training in partnership with the employers to help people to become software engineers, digital marketers, data scientists, you know, business people within an organization right at the beginning of their career and throughout. So they do these long duration apprenticeships, really innovative, very applied learning based, really what we'll need in order to continually develop ourselves through our careers. And the third piece is community, because if you're going to build an outstanding alternative to university, you need something that gives the university experience that people get of building friendships, building social capital, building professional networks, the opportunity to develop a growth mindset and build confidence. And so our apprenticeship offering also incorporates a community offering where we do talks, we have inspiring talks, we have social events, we have sports teams. It's a very active community. So these are the three things we do. But I know we're primarily focusing on the first part. But if you think of that as being part of the facilitation of how do you get diverse talent, and by diverse talent, I mean people from all backgrounds, including particularly socioeconomic diversity. I think that's the biggest you know, blocker for many people to be their best self, to realize their potential. And we connect those people to great companies to start apprenticeship opportunities. Wow, that sounds amazing. I mean, I can totally, I can see that specifically in the UK, of course, there is class difference in many countries, especially across Western Europe. But my experience with the UK, 
that is where you have the private school system and the public one is actually the private one and then there's the state one which is the public one that's correct so public means eton harrow these kind of you know elite schools and then yeah yeah how did this idea get started so my co-founder ewan came up with the idea of how do we reinvent apprenticeships and when we got together we sort of reinvented that into the idea of how do we build an outstanding alternative to university with apprenticeships as a mechanism to do that, but not the only solution. So the ambition is bigger than that. The ambition is given university doesn't provide either employers or young people or people throughout their career with the skills they need to be successful in their careers today and in the future as the future of work changes, how do we build an alternative model, an alternative pathway that's equally as prestigious to the best of universities and actually give people that alternative path. So that's where the idea kind of came from. Yeah. So Whitehead is building a new future for work. So how does Whitehead see that future? We see people doing very different jobs in 10 years time from the ones they do today. And therefore, as a workforce, we need to be constantly upskilling and investing in our people so that their skill sets match the needs of employers. And I think the onus now goes on to companies to actually continually invest in people's development. Historically, it was a responsibility of the individual to train themselves. But actually what they were going through was academic training. And then once they hit the desk on their first job, they actually had to learn how to do the job. So in many ways, we all did an apprenticeship. It just wasn't structured as such. And there was huge variability in terms of the amount of training and support that we received. Now in the future, and actually I'd say the future is today, people are now starting to require that ongoing training and development. It's something that Gen Z and millennials really care about, which is how are you going to develop me? How are you going to set me up for success for the future? And companies recognize that by investing in the skills, not only do they close that gap in terms of skill set that they need and the availability of talent, they create retention opportunities for their staff. They're really investing in the future productivity of their teams, and it will allow them to actually be much more innovative in the future. So for us, future of work is all about skills and training and development because we expect that, you know, in 10 years time, 80% of the jobs that exist don't exist today. Yeah, I can relate to a lot of the things that you're saying. I mean, I studied actually English language and culture, then cultural analysis. So full on liberal arts or humanities <laughs> degree. And now I'm like marketing. So if there's a connection somewhere. But yeah, I did not get trained for this job through institutional education in that way. That's really interesting because I saw last year a presentation on the Marketplace Conference by, she's called Florence Aret. She works for Adavinta Ventures. And she actually said kind of two things that now resonate with what you're saying. So first of all, she's saying that the linear career path is gone. Mm -hmm. So people, like just because of the way the job market is progressing, like becoming more and more flexible, people will very likely, and especially indeed the younger generation, will very likely start one, two or three careers, not just one. And then also, indeed, because of this work is becoming more and more flexible, whether actually the candidates or the workforce likes that or not, it just forced basically training on people. Like it basically comes from both sides. It's not just that the generation wants it, but also the sort of, I can't recall the numbers, but like the average career that someone has with the company has like, I don't know, like gone down by 80% over the last 10 years or something like that. Yeah. 
I think it's something like most people stay on an average sort of two to three years at a company. I think it's the idea that you will stay in the same company for your whole career has basically disappeared. And even if you do stay in a company for a very long time, your job changes. So I think one of the reasons that people stay at companies like Google and Unilever is because every 18 months, their job completely changes and they have to relearn. They have to develop new skills and that's exciting and engaging. So we've got to continue to be investing in people's skill sets. Yeah, no, I can relate to that. I mean, my dad retired from the same factory where he has worked for 50 years, like literally. Wow. Which is, I mean, but this has happened in like one generation. And I can see that indeed, like institutional education did definitely not catch up with that development for that particular aspect. So how is Whitehead constrained? Coming back to the higher situation, are you supply constrained? So supply in this case, meaning the candidates, are you demand constrained in terms of the employers? What's the situation with Whitehead? So we are demand constrained. Again, similar thing as with Hired, that it's about getting companies to start engaging with apprenticeships and trying to hire this young talent, because it's something that they haven't really done before in the past. So a lot of what we did early on was education. What is an apprenticeship? Why do you need to build a pipeline of talent? How does this help improve your diversity metrics? You know, how do you assess for high potential when somebody doesn't have a degree? Because most companies just use a degree as a checkbox to say, oh, this person is going to be good enough to join my company. Well, we all know that academic success and professional success are not correlated you know, I think Ernst & Young did a big study where they actually looked at their apprentice group and their graduate group, and they looked at their performance during their accounting exams, and they found that the apprentices actually outperformed the graduates. They also tend to stay longer. So I think we can so quite happily point to the fallacy that somehow, if you are academically smart, you're going to be good within a role in your business. And I think most people would agree that most of the things they learnt we're not from their academic environment. So we are definitely more demand constrained in that regard. And how do you, how do you go about solving that currently? As I said, it's, it's a lot of education. So we have a large and uh, growing sales team. We're really focused on how to help companies understand not just the value of what we offer, but the need that they have as an organization to invest in their future workforce, invest in their current workforce, because apprenticeships are not just for young people you know, leaving school, they're also for people throughout their career. So how can they use that concept to develop their people? And so it's this piece of, let me understand the problems you're trying to solve as a business, and let me show you how we as an organization can support you in achieving those goals, whether that be you know, building a more diverse team, whether that be closing their skills gap, whether that be training their managers. There are ways to solve that problem through an apprenticeship approach. So in Hired, coming back to Hired, you basically had a platform that you could sort of pick up and take to the UK and get started. With Whitehead, you founded that company. So I'm very interested, obviously, also because of the background of the company who is bringing this podcast to everybody. What was your first version of, of Whitehead? Very manual. So one of the things I was going to say about marketplaces earlier on is that all marketplaces, when they start to facilitate it, I think a lot of people think that they just work. But actually, behind the scenes, you've got people who are doing this matching because in, in a marketplace, it's all about getting the supply matched to the demand or the demand matched to the supply and helping them find each other and make that connection and for the transaction, whatever the transaction is to occur. So when we first started, we didn't have a platform. We had a very basic website with a form that people could fill in, both for candidates and for employers. 
But people still actually just called us up. So we had a you know, phone number on the website and people would just call up and say, hey, I want to do an apprenticeship. Very limited inbound from employers. So again, that was how do we go out and generate that demand. But on the supply side, it was either young people calling or the parents calling. And then we'd take them through our vetting and curation process. Now, if they filled out the form online at the beginning, it was incredibly manual. It was what have they done previously? What do they want to do? What kind of competencies do they display? Have they had any work experience? Have they had you know, any leadership experience? What, what do they do? And then we'd actually invite them in to a physical assessment center, essentially, to assess them. In the first iteration, we've done on paper and spreadsheets on Google. And we had the roles up on a whiteboard um, in, the, in the office. And then we had the candidates in a spreadsheet and we'd manually do the match, send the email, and it would be all done like that. Now, what's great about that is if you can build a business where it is, you've got a supply demand dynamic, it is a marketplace, but you can actually generate revenue without any technology, then you know that you have the ability to develop something that will be more facilitated and you can invest in building that marketplace. Now, I obviously, because of my hired experience, I had an idea of what I wanted the back end of that system to look like, how I wanted that matching process to work, how I wanted to create efficiency in the candidate vetting and the employer vetting and the connection process and building that data architecture behind. But at the beginning, we didn't have the money or the resource internally to do that. So then we had to start building out sort of an online application, a platform process. And that was sort of V2. And now we're probably on V25. But V1 was very manual. Yeah, fantastic. Like, it's great to hear also in an earlier episode where I talked to Charles, who you also know from Florence. And he told me a similar story that their first shifts uh, matching also happened in Google Sheets, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah. That's the right way. I still have pictures of that. So sometimes in, you know, when I'm doing the team, you know, what we've developed on the product and tech side, because I look after the product and tech team at White Hat, as well as some of the other teams. And when I show them where we are today, I also remind them how far we've come by showing them the original spreadsheets and how we calculated all these different metrics manually. Well, you say, of course, but it's not actually that logical. Like, I think many people... Maybe especially people who you could benefit from a prior experience and, and working a little bit more with startups and maybe realizing that the idea is probably more important than the initial execution. But I think often people, and, and we see that also at ShareType a lot, people are very, they would like to build Uber in a day. You know, yeah. everything, including SMS notifications, geolocation, any kind of thing. So I'm actually, But I yeah. think people forget that all of these companies started off with humans going out into the street and making that business work. I mean, with I had friends at Uber and when they launched new markets, they'd literally go around and find cab drivers and talk to them and convince them that this new startup was something they wanted to do. And I think at the end of the day, it's all about sales, but you have to you have to show this product market fit before you can start spending money on building product. And, and importantly, if you build a tech product before you understand what you need and what dynamics you need to develop and generate and the efficiencies you need and what the priorities would be, you'll end up building something that doesn't actually work. So I actually think that those organizations that don't start by using spreadsheets and whiteboards are missing a trick because you learn a huge amount and it allows you to know where the pain points are in your process. 
Yeah, and it, it, it really, we always sort of hammer on this idea that, well, you need first need to validate this idea somehow. So it doesn't happen until you basically the first transaction happens, mm. which is a nice segue into my question. What was the first transaction for Wipad? So we worked with a lot of very small companies early on. Before we started working with the, the Santander's and the, the Skies and the, you know, Googles of the world. We worked with very small companies. We had to build our reputation. So I think the first placement was with a company called Servest. I think that's right. In facilities. I can't remember exactly. And we went on to law firms and small tech companies. Quite frankly, at the beginning, it was just anyone who was willing to take on a, an, a young apprentice and invest in their development. And then we learned along the way. And I think you have to start with low risk. I think the companies that start by trying to win the big deals straight off the bat with these big companies are setting themselves up for failure because those big companies require a lot of support, a lot of account management. They want things to be bespoke. And you can actually refocus your entire team to build something for that big client. Whereas if you can establish yourself and say, no, this works for lots of small companies, then you can actually go to the big companies and say, no, no, we built something that we know works. You need to adapt to us. And that's more how we work now. We are the experts and they they start to sort of listen to our advice. Yeah. But of course, it has taken you a couple of years to build that position, like what you mentioned also with the education and everything. Yeah. Hey, this was super insightful. I got so much out of this already. I learn everything every time I learn something new. And I really like the idea of this squares thinking. So thanks for that. Time for a final plug for the people in the UK. I think, isn't Whitehead UK only for now? Yes, we're only in the UK right now, but the plan is to, to move to the US early next year. So, Oh, wow. So where can people find Whitehead? So if you go to whitehat.org.uk, and if you're a company that's looking to take on apprentices, then you can click on the employers tab, and somebody in the team would love to speak to you about the different kind of apprenticeships that we offer for both young people, bringing on new talent, because I know a lot of companies aren't hiring right now, so something to keep in mind for the future. But also if you want to invest in your existing talent, even if they're furloughed, which a lot of companies are doing right now, you can actually start somebody on an apprenticeship during their furlough period. And it's a great way to keep people engaged and active and developing their skills while they're on furlough. So it's very timely right now that people are able to invest in their development. All right. Thank you very much, Sophie. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Two Sided, the Marketplace podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe. If you listen on iTunes, we'd also love for you to rate and give us a review. If you got inspired to build your own marketplace, go visit www.sharetribe.com. It's the fastest way to build a successful online marketplace business. Until next time.